the ideas, the leaders, the lives that are shaping Denmark and the world. From Blocks Hub in Copenhagen, Denmark, with your co-hosts Ed Lay and Thomas Mulhern. This is Global Denmark. Welcome to the Global Denmark podcast, where we explore how thought leaders and innovators are working together to create a better Denmark and a better world. Today, we had the pleasure of sitting down with Niels Bjerg Paulsen. Niels has a PhD in America studies and is the lead correspondent on America for Denmark. In this wide-ranging conversation, we explored how to understand a nation, who writes history, and painting over the cracks of history. Without further ado, we bring you Niels Bjerg Paulsen. I am here with my co-host, as always, Ed Lay. And our guest today, live from New York, Niels Bjerre Paulsen. Niels, thank you so much for joining the podcast. Well, thank you for inviting me. It's a pleasure. Niels, we want to dive straight in here and hear your thoughts on how you actually understand a nation. Well, that's a that's a heavy one, but I think I have sort of grown accustomed to seeing the difference, perhaps understanding Denmark in contrast to American concept of a nation. And I think American studies, the field that I've been working in for the last three decades, was sort of based on the idea of America as a an idea that the nation was to some extent a particular idea rather than uh, just the institutions or the people, but that there was a particular American idea that American studies to some extent was to identify certain American things, whether it be road signs or history or popular culture or whatever. So I think Americans at least have grown up with a different idea about what a nation state is. Although, of course, it has taken a civil war and uh, even the civil war, I guess, didn't create any kind of consensus on just what the American nation was. But the overall idea that it was a nation is in some ways in contrast with I think, a Danish concept, which is more tribal. And I think that's what we see being challenged these years in Danish politics as well. This notion that, well, you know, if there is, has been a certain idea that, you know, the nation was something that had just always been there and you needed to sort of grow up within the nation but to understand what it was. And I think mm. that was always a fallacy. It was yeah, really challenged for, I guess, for many, many years and being challenged to a higher degree now. So Danes go back would point to the United States and say, well, you cannot compare it because American national identity is more of an idea. It's a concept. Immigrants could come to the United States and then they could have embraced the concept and then they were Americans. But that Denmark was different. And I mean, there are some differences probably. But I mean, if you go back to the 19th century, you really had a country that consisted of Norway and the German parts that are now south of the border and then Denmark and then you had Greenland and the Faroe Islands and it was always sort of a multilingual and multicultural entity 
And for a long time, of course, German or French were the official languages if you worked in government and so on. But it is really with Romanticism, I think, in the 19th century that you begin to get the concept in Denmark that it's really the language is sort of a defining. That's what makes you Danish. And that's where you begin to sort of force the German south of the border to speak Danish and so on. Mm. And it leads to to wars and other things. And that's that really interesting. Denmark falling apart. I can see then how the way uh, a population sees what a nation stands for could have an impact on the way it views immigration and integration as well. Exactly, yeah. We have had some waves of immigration before that haven't been controversial because they haven't been sort of conceptualized as a threat to national identity. But then on the other hand, I mean, we haven't had large waves of immigration like the United States. And and I do recall when I was a kid, I had an Aunt Lydia living in Wisconsin. And at that point, I guess the most foreign elements in Copenhagen were 10 world-famous jazz musicians. And every time she visited, me and my entire family would, you know, berate her for racial relations in the United States. And she would say, well, you don't understand. You have no background for understanding racial relations. And we were like, oh, yeah, we do. You know, we have Dexter Gordon and Kenny Drew and others just around the corner. But in some sense, she was right, not about, you know, the racial relations, but about our limited ability to relate to the ongoing discussions about race and ethnicity in the United States. And I have to say, once we got a larger influx of immigrants. The Danish response to that is not exactly, in my view, been admirable. So I think I'm less proud of the Danish response to those kinds of challenges, you can call them challenges of globalization, than I used to be when we were not really faced with it to the same extent yeah. and could sort of look at television and look at the racial riots in the United States and have an opinion about that. How would you like to see Denmark approach immigration? I don't know. I, I mean, perhaps that's why I'm not thrilled about Danish politics. I tend to get disillusioned. But I mean, right now I'm living in New York City for a couple of months. I might be a romantic, but I walk out the door and I sort of enjoy being in that kind of multicultural environment. And I think the Danish debate is sort of the most primitive form of identity politics. It's like it has sort of occupied many of the political parties in politics. It's immigration is like the only question that really has a pulse. And you get these ongoing competitions now about, you know, who can be tougher on immigration and who can find new ways of defining who we are and who they are. And I think it's really damaging long term to the whole fabric of Danish society. Now, it sounds like from what you said before that this is a dynamic process where a nation's identity goes through different periods throughout history. And though this may be the reality in Denmark right now, that it, it could also change within 50 to 100 years, depending upon the political initiatives that are taken. Yeah. I mean, you can hope that it will, but I think the really discouraging thing is that so many Danish politicians sort of see the short-term gains of dividing and talking about them and an us. It's sort of based on the notion that you can completely stop 
changes in the global economy, the movement of people. And uh, I mean, it's not as if you do have choices to make, but you are also alienating a lot of people. And I think doing long-term damage to their concept of being part of, of community. And I think in many ways, the surprising thing about the election of Donald Trump in the United States was that to some extent, he represented something that had been known for a long time in Europe. To some extent, it was a kind of right-wing populism that hadn't really caught on before Trump actually won the presidency on ideas about immigration and building a border wall and so on. But these are ideas that have sort of flourished in European politics, I think, for a longer time. America has always had this idea that, or when I say America, you know, I'm simplifying, but it has been an American idea that the immigrants were America in a sense, that America was a nation of immigrants. And whether you saw it as a melting pot, multicultural society, the idea was to some extent that multiculturalism was what made America, America. You've had politicians before trying to talk about, you know, the dangers of getting too many Spanish speaking or German speaking. I mean, you've had that reaction throughout, nativist reaction throughout American history, but you haven't had anyone who actually became president based on exactly those issues. And I think that was a new thing in 2016. You mentioned before that the way Americans see their nation is through ideas. What are the core ideas if our Danish audience was trying to really understand the essence of the American mentality that are alive and well today? Well, I mean, the standard answer would probably be, well, let's go back to the Declaration of Independence. And we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. Well, we all know it literally meant men and you had, you know, the paradox of slavery and all sorts of, you know, even for white men, there were property laws and other things. But the idea that it was an aspirational idea, let's put it that way, that this was the beginning of a project and the goal was a rule-based liberal order, let's call it that, based on universal values, that power came from below, that rulers were only rulers through the consent of the governed and, and so on and so forth. So I think it was a revolutionary idea when Thomas Jefferson wrote the Declaration of Independence. The general idea in Europe at that point was, of course, that power came from above, from God. And Jefferson's idea was that you were only a legitimate ruler uh, through the consent of the government, that you were born with rights, and for practical purposes, you could sort of let a government administer those rights. But if that social contract was broken, then, well, then you could... uh, break loose and form another government. That was basically Jefferson's way of justifying, you know, breaking away from Britain. So I think that is sort of still the document that many Americans would point to as the idea of what it means to be American, that you basically ascribe to this view of government and that forms American identity. Are we not currently seeing a, if not global, at least Northern European and American indication of 
unrest in the population and, and frustration with what's going on with the governments, with Trump, with Brexit? Are we not seeing the people acting out of frustration that they can't seem to create the change that they want to create? Yeah, I don't know if I'm the right person to that kind of larger analysis, but I think you can see clear parallels, right, between Brexit, between the election of Trump, between advance of right-wing populism and more authoritarian ways of viewing politics. I think to some extent it is this idea of a rule-based liberal order that is under pressure, right? You can hear mainstream Danish politicians sort of taking pride in that they're going right to the limit of conventions and so on. And even, you know, in parties that used to be happy about the European Union and the whole idea that the European Union is based on, suddenly you had this idea, we will have to decide what to do. So there's clearly a resurgence of nationalism, I think, in, in many countries as a response to the forces of globalization. But I think there's also a reaction to that then. I think it's fairly clear that Brexit was a wake-up call for many politicians in Europe, at least I hope it was. And I, I think you can see the same thing here in the United States. There's a reaction to the reaction, so to speak. And Trumpism is, is also sort of clearing the minds of many people. Perhaps not. I mean, uh, I go back and forth between being very pessimistic about where we are heading at other times, optimistic about how it's sort of clearing the minds and the reactions I see to these forces in both Europe and the United States. So maybe we can take a look at the current political situation. You're over in the United States right now. We know there's an election coming up in 2020, and we're seeing all over the news that there is a ongoing investigations of uh, Donald Trump uh, with regards to the 2016 election. What is your current take on the, the mood on the people you're talking to with regards to American politics right now? Well, I, I love the way you say there's an election coming up in 2020, because that's what Everybody's saying here every day, there's always an election coming up in the United <laughs> States. And I think, you know, in a sense, I think that's important. America is in a sort of state of permanent campaign. And I, I sometimes say that Americans love elections, but they hate politics, mm -hmm. you know, the day-to-day -day politics. Sometimes it's a problem that there's always focus on the next election. I mean, we just had an election a couple of months ago, and now everything is focused on who will be the contenders for, for 2020. Perhaps it's different this time because the Trump era has been something, I think, quite unique in American history. We're constantly looking for historical analogies. Is he Andrew Jackson? Is he George Wallace? Is he what is it? And I think that it goes beyond that. The paradox is, of course, the American economy is doing quite fine, better than fine, perhaps. You have had the longest growth period in American history, and yet there is this sense, at least in a little more than half of the population, that this is one of the darkest chapters in American hmm. history. And You've studied American is, history, Niels. Has the country ever been as divided as it is now, besides, I guess, the Civil War? <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I wrote a book about the Vietnam War, and you go back to 1968 and you say, wow, this is in a sense worse, right? I mean, 1968, 1969, 1970, those were terrible years in terms of 
division, radicalization, political assassinations, riots, everything. But I think this is different somehow. If you go back to those years, you know, you had the same discussion. The center cannot hold. We're falling apart. And yet people look back and say, well, something the center could actually hold after all. Now you have a discussion which is about Trump almost on a daily basis, I think, tearing or probing attacks on the very foundations of American democracy. I think you could almost say that this could become, I don't want to sound overly dramatic, but it could be like a constitutional crisis, depending on what happens with the Mueller report and how Trump's supporters and opponents will react to it. If the idea for many Trump supporters was he would be like a Molotov cocktail that you could throw into Washington and it would break down, you know, business as usual and something new would would emerge. I think we've seen some of the, you know, something new has emerged, but it's a destruction has emerged of liberal uh, democracy in a way. Yeah. And in a sense, he's challenging exactly what I talked about with, you know, the Declaration of Independence, the basic tenets of a liberal democracy. I think he has a strong authoritarian bent. And unfortunately, that seems to be still popular with a substantial part of his voters. I think that's what's so difficult for Danes and, you know, people over in Europe to understand is, but there's no way he could possibly be reelected, Right. And then they're shocked to hear I say, well, actually, he's he's sitting about 40, 45 percent in approval still. Yeah, I, I mean, it tells you something that it's, it's like two parallel universes, right? You could say one is larger than the other. He's still the only president who has never approached 50 percent in approval ratings and has sort of remained by historical standards unpopular. But there might be a ceiling, but there's also strong support within the Republican Party. He has something like 8% approval among Republicans. And I think that's what critics of Trump are talking about, that to some extent he has managed to transform the very nature of one of the two big political parties. And that's more worrying than Trump, in a sense. You now have a Republican Party who used to be, you know, conservative, more diverse, and for some reason, it's now supporting a president who you might say is opposed to most of the basic tenets of what American conservatism has been. Belief in free trade just being one of several things where you could say Trump is many things, but he's certainly not a conservative. And nevertheless, he has sort of gained the support of a majority of Republican voters. Now, how deep that loyalty goes is, of course, difficult to say, but it is kind of puzzling every time you see these opinion polls that he may have lost independent voters and certainly Democratic voters never had the Democratic voter. But within the Republican Party, the party changed rather than Trump. And that was the expectation that, well, once in office, he will become normalized. And I don't think no, I think that's a valid point that the, the party changed to Trump, not the inverse that Trump adapted yeah. to the party. I think there's a very real sense, certainly in, in the UK where I'm from, that our leaders simply use social media and data and big companies who perhaps really make the decisions to decide 
how they will sway the nation's votes and, and in fact trick them into voting in the direction that they want them to. Who determines what to focus on in history and, and how it's interpreted in both Danish uh, history, American history and across the world? I think, you know, there was an interesting book a couple of years ago by an American historian, Lee Edwards. It's called On Deaf Ears. And the idea of the book was to say, well, the president supposedly has the bully pulpit and he can sort of sway public opinion and can move public opinion. And what he was showing through empirical data was that it's quite surprising how limited a president's ability to move public opinion actually is. In that sense, I'm not afraid of that, you know, the demagogue who will suddenly move public opinion. In a sense, it's more of a problem in Congress. I think Trump can do things because a lot of Republicans in Congress, even if they privately abhor him and think that he's a terrible person, then they still support him loyally because he has enough voters who has some kind of loyalty to him, not based on opinions as much as perhaps loyalty to the man and the idea that here's their guy and and he's going to change things. The problem is really not that he's moving public opinion on issues like the wall or other issues he ran on. It's really that you have a part of the Republicans in Congress being scared of disaffected voters if they go against the president on, yeah. on some issues. And you see them go massively against him on some issues, like when they wanted to strengthen sanctions on Russia. In contrast to what the president wanted to do, he wanted to ease sanctions on Russia. That passed the Senate with votes 98 to 2. As far as I recall, you could see the same thing with the budget that passed the Senate 100 votes to zero. And then Trump sort of made a 180 and suddenly he wanted money for the border wall or he wanted to shut the federal government down. So I think more than he has moved people on issues, there is sort of a cult of personality and Republican members of Congress are scared of angry Trump voters. Mm. And that makes them behave in a way that they wouldn't have behaved before, or take positions that they probably don't have in private on issues ranging from a border wall to free trade to a number of other issues that go against what Republicans would traditionally support. Right. Now, we're talking about Trump, obviously, who is in the midst of creating his legacy. But when we talk about how history remembers a person, what determines the focus? And I guess, how are legacies created and maintained and, or changed? Yeah, perhaps I should say that's sort of my research project here. While I'm in the United States, I have a Fulbright Visiting Scholar grant and I'm affiliated with the, the Franklin Delano Roosevelt Presidential Library and Museum and Marist College. There's a close cooperation between Marist College and the FDR Library. Franklin Roosevelt founded the system of presidential libraries. There are currently 13 presidential libraries and a 14th is under construction, the Obama Library in Chicago. What I find fascinating about this system is that it's kind of a private-public partnership. The government will provide the National Archives, which is our source to history and to writing history, 
And then private funds are building the museums and the actual buildings. And these presidents now, in order to raise the money for it, most of them have presidential foundations. You've probably heard of the Clinton Foundation or the Obama has a foundation now. So many of these foundations then have, you know, people with an interest in preserving or creating the legacy of that particular president. So the question I was sort of asking is, who writes history? For a professional historian, we would like to think that we are the ones who ultimately decide how a president and or a particular era should be remembered. But of course, there are all sorts of forces involved in that process and with all sorts of different motives in writing history. So often, you know, you can go to the archives at the Reagan Library out in Simi Valley, California, and you can look at the archives and you will get, you know, perhaps not one view, but you can do what historians do, right? You know, try to take a critical approach to the sources you're confronted with because all the documents are there. And then you can go into the museum next door and it's a very different version, perhaps, of what the 1980s were like and what Ronald Reagan was like as a president. And the exhibition will be largely shaped by the Reagan Foundation, which will be members of the Republican Party, family members. It could be former Reagan staff members. It could be all sorts of investors who have perhaps a vested interest in portraying a particular image, providing a particular image. Now, is it always a positive image? Well, if you go to the museum, it's a very positive image. But this is where it becomes interesting because the government, in order to provide the archives, they have certain conditions that, you know, the museums should reflect the era and it should be warts and all history. It should actually be a balanced view of what that era was like. To mention one typical example, the Nixon Library. There was a Nixon Museum founded by the Nixon family out in Yorba Linda in California. And they didn't get the archives because they didn't want to make a Watergate display. They simply didn't want to mention the Watergate scandal, which eventually forced Nixon to resign. And for many, many years, the Nixon Presidential Library was the only one where the archives were in Maryland, actually, and then the museum was in California until they finally reached some kind of settlement and they got the archives moved out to California and the Nixon family or the Nixon Foundation or whatever yeah. agreed to make a Watergate display. And actually, it's a very good museum now, I think. But those are the types of issues where... You could see a conflict between the government saying, if we are to pay for having run the presidential archives out in Yoba Linda, we want the museum to give an objective version of what the Nixon era was like. Yeah, and I think an important part of the Nixon era is, oh, and yes, and here it abruptly stopped. We're not going to tell you how and why. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, so I mean, but, but you do have these discussions with many of the museums, you know, Iran-Contra in, in the Reagan era. If you go to the George W. Bush Museum, for example, there is sort of a um, decision room, it's called, where you can decide whether you want to invade Iraq or not. And you have three minutes and you have different voices on the screen and 
then you have to make a decision after three minutes. The critics right. will say that that decision center <laughs> is really sort of rigged in such a way that a very large portion of those who, who take the test end up deciding, yes, better safe than sorry, we have to invade Iraq. So those are the kinds of things that will lead to discussions yeah. about, you know, how can presidents, once they have left office, perhaps try to justify decisions that were less popular. You know, at the Truman Library, you can also have a similar thing where you decide whether or not to use the atomic bomb and so on. So it's an ongoing process. History is not just written once. It's where visitors to new generations coming to these museums will revise their views of these presidents. And and I think writing history is an ongoing process. So we're constantly writing history and rewriting history. And who writes that history? How are we influencing people through communication now? It seems that the media and perhaps the presidents get to control that rhetoric until there's more distance put between now yeah. and, and then. And I mean, that's that's where you get all these discussions also now about fake news. You know, one example, concern for the level of misinformation. Let me take one example. The Obama library will not become a library. Obama decided that he didn't want these archives to take up a lot of resources and space. So he would like to have all the records of the Obama administration digitized. And then you could approach them online. And then the actual documents will be somewhere in a warehouse in St. Louis or somewhere in the Midwest. But the Obama Library will have all documents online and then it will be sort of a community action center. And that concerns some of the archivists in the National Archives because they say, we don't know what you can do with, you know, PDF documents. Is it easier to falsify electronic documents, and, uh, so to speak, hack into the documents and change them in substantial ways? <laughs> so we'll so, go from fake news to fake histories. <laughs> I mean, it's not a new thing, of course, fake document, but there was just a concern that it can happen on a much larger scale. I mean, I'm sitting up at the Roosevelt Library now with all the original documents and you have to be very careful. And there's an archivist looking at if you somehow fold it in the wrong way, they will... <laughs> They will come down to your table. Yeah, exactly. So I'm just saying that is an additional concern. And you can already see the problem of misinformation, of course, being discussed. Or some would argue that because of social media, it's even more outspoken than it it used to be. At least it's a concern. Niels, I'm mindful of our time and I want to ask one more question and then we're going to take a quick break. You are a political commentator for two major Danish television channels. Is there a specific way you communicate what's going on in the United States to a Danish audience that maybe you would communicate differently to an American audience? Yeah, I think at least in some areas, I have to take sort of the differences between the Danish political system, the the American political system as a point of departure. And I think I also need to make the point that America is many different things, and there are 325 million people and and very diverse views on a lot of issues. There is a tendency, perhaps, in Denmark 
to ask questions, you know, what do the Americans think about this? And mm. it's not as if you always have time to come up with very complex views on, you know, a whole range of different opinions. But to some extent, I think you need to say that there is a range of opinions and also that decisions are made on many different levels. I think that's one of the difficult things often for for Danes to understand, you know, that if you take something like gun laws, then you're yeah. talking about federal laws, you're talking about state laws, you're talking about all sorts of different levels. And I get a lot of requests from Danish students, kids who need to write a paper in eighth grade or ninth grade or in high school. And often it's something like, can you just explain what the American weapons law is or the law on guns in, in America? Yeah. Take a highly and, complex uh, yeah, issue yeah. and give us a. And, and a there's this against. notion that there is one law that applies yeah. to everything. Just understanding something like federalism and the different levels of decision making is often very complicated. It's about creating a message of this is complex and to keep a curious, open mind towards the complexity, I guess. Yeah, ideally, you would like to do that. But of course, often you have two minutes. I remember the first time I was in television, which was way back, I was basically saying, well, this is very complex. And I was sort of adding up all the reasons why it was complex. And then we were out of time before I had said anything uh, <laughs> substantial. So you also need to sort of front load and say, okay, this is what I think is important. And then yeah. after that, you'll try to get some of the nuances. Yeah, and, for further and reading, so visit this. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Well, apropos time, I think this is a great place to take a quick break. And then we're going to finish out the podcast today with some quick fire questions. Okay. Niels, welcome back. To dive right in there, do you have any habits, routines or rituals that you do every day to, to keep yourself sharp, so to speak? Yeah, I spend an awful lot of time on Twitter and Facebook. I don't know if it makes me sharp or the opposite. Uh, <laughs> I, so if you mean in terms of keeping me mentally sharp, I, I, I don't know if I have any routines that do that. I play the drums. I don't know if that makes me mentally sharp, but it's something I need to do. Obviously, over here, I'm just playing on a practice pad, so it's not quite as dramatic as... And what type home. of drums do you play? Is this uh, rock and roll? Or? Well, I play both jazz and rock and roll. Actually, I probably play more jazz these days. So at home, I have two kids in the basement. Not two kids, two kids. <laughs> <laughs> that sounded wrong. Uh, so I have a jazz kit and a larger rock kit. Excellent. Niels, what is your biggest motivator and your biggest demotivator? I'm a political junkie. I get up every morning. I reach out for my iPad and I have to check what happened. It's almost like an addiction. The demotivator, I don't know. I think writing something is always harder than you think. You have an expectation that it gets easier and easier to do and that you get a routine and, and so on. And in a sense, it gets more difficult. I make all sorts of excuses before I finally put the last stop in a paper. I like to think that it's because I raise my standards, but I'm not sure that's the case. I mean, 
read something I wrote 10 years ago and it's as good or as bad as what I'm writing now. So, <laughs> well, so I saw you I, wrote a book about the Vietnam War that was a, a few pages long. Wasn't that like 500 pages? It was 580 pages. Yes. 580, yeah. That, yeah, yeah. That's, and, a, that's uh, a production. That was a production. At first, we were supposed to be three authors, and it was supposed to be something like 350 pages. And it ended up being me writing the book and double the size. And I was very grateful that the publisher would let me write a 600-page book. But it also ended up taking you know, a very long time and uh, hundreds of, of nights of writing. And right. I love that process of, of writing. But at some point, you know, you need to end. And something like Vietnam, there's so much written on Vietnam and so many sources available that it was almost, not almost, it was an endless project unless <laughs> you ended at some point. I mean, you could have written. 10,000 pages on Vietnam or, or more. You had to pull so, the plug at 600. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. Do you Talk have any drama. personal traits that you wrestle with in terms of self-regulation? Yeah, not doing everything in the last minute is probably my biggest problem. My wife, who's sitting here in the apartment, is incredibly disciplined. She gets up early in the morning and she starts working and I have to uh, read newspapers and I can sort of convince myself that all the other stuff that I do is part of the process, even if it's not. So staying focused and sort of being disciplined in a sense. On the other hand, I then work at, you know, late at night at all sorts of different times and always with the sense that I, I should have done it earlier. But I guess work-wise, I think that would be what I'm mostly wrestling with. Niels, I'm really curious about this next one because you are an historian, but if you were invited to a dinner party and you can invite two people, alive or dead, from history, who would be sitting with you at that dinner party? Oh, wow. That's an interesting one. Who would I like? I would probably, if it was also supposed to be an interesting dinner party, I would probably invite someone I admire mm. and uh, Franklin Roosevelt and Abraham Lincoln, perhaps, would be uh, two people who were not only interesting presidents, but also funny in private. So I guess those would be two, or Martin Luther King, perhaps. That would be an interesting dinner. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, I guess that would be an interesting dinner where I would be awestruck and not say a word. <laughs> they have a lot in common as well, I think. Do you have a quote, value or principle that you live your life by to, to make decisions? Well, <laughs> I guess what's it called, that prayer where you say... Serenity prayer. The, the serenity prayer, that would be it. I think that's still the one I would abide by. Would it be, Lord, help me to change the things I can change and accept the things I cannot change and know the difference between the two? Yeah. If I should have one sort of rule or guideline, and I think that's probably the best piece of advice I have seen. I think after Trump, we're going to have to amend the serenity prayer to help me know the difference between fake news and real news. <laughs> <laughs> it's a, an addendum to the serenity <laughs> prayer. <laughs> Niels, did you have a teacher or mentor growing up who had a, an influence on your life or your yes, career path? Yes, several. I mean, at the university, I had a mentor in particular, Professor Inga Floto, who was a mentor for me. Actually, 
when I signed up, I knew I was going to study history. And I was 18 and came to the university, looked at, you know, the options that semester. And one of them was American history, the progressive era, 1900 to 1920. And I don't know why, I've often been asked, why did you end up doing American history, I don't really know, you know, I go back, you know, to my childhood and think, is there something in particular that made me do that? But I saw that course and thought, that's what I want to do. American history, of course. And that was Inga Floto teaching that course. And she became sort of my mentor. After that, I was just hooked on U.S. history. So you had to take mandatory courses in Danish history and, and ancient history, a number of other time eras, but I kept returning to American history as much as possible and wrote my thesis in American history with her as my advisor. And, and later on, she was really the one who helped me to a career in, in history. So she would be... Then I came to UC Santa Barbara as a PhD student in, in the late 80s and had a couple of professors there that I also think back on as people Excellent. who were were sort of uh, crucial for my further career. What um, book or books have you most gifted or been influenced by? You know, had I known that I should say something smart about these things, I would have, <laughs> I would have written down notes. Um, I could say the very first book I ever read in American history was a book called The Age of Reform by a historian named Richard Hofstadter remains one of the most influential historian in American history, even though he died in 1970. I can tell you Hofstadter, who was a professor, I think, at Columbia University here in New York, his books have been voted for many years. They were voted as best books on history, but they were also voted as most wrong books. He was not sort of an empiricist, really, but he had these large conceptual ideas about American political culture, anti-intellectualism in American life, the age of reform, the paranoid style in American politics. Mm. Really influential books. And I think the age of reform was probably the first book I read. And perhaps for that reason, it sort of stuck with me. I've read it a couple of times since, and it is still a, a great book. Well, Nils, we're uh, mindful of your time and want to wrap up the podcast today with one final question. And that is, what do you think Denmark can teach the rest of the world? And what do you think Denmark can still learn from a society, for example, like the United States? Wow. Big Big concepts again, you're, Grand finale. De you're dealing it. I mean, I'm also a local Danish patriot and I cheer every time someone with even the most remote affiliation with Denmark becomes famous and does something good. You know, Viggo Mortensen is nominated for an Oscar. It's like an Oscar for Denmark and so on. But I also, uh, I'm also sort of aware of that Danes can become very provincial in a sense and think that Denmark is the center of the world and that we can sort of, if everybody just behaved like Danes, the world would be a, a great place. So I'm, I'm constantly trying to avoid getting into that trap. But 
On the other hand, I think, you know, there are certain things that work. The question is, would they also work in a population of 325 million if they work in a, in, in a Danish population of 5 million? So I'm, I try constantly to remind myself that not everything that works in Denmark is actually applicable to the rest of the world. But I think we do some things right, even if I'm disillusioned about Danish politics. I think that there are a lot of things that actually work, and uh, I'm sort of proud of that. Excellent. Well, Niels, it's been an absolute pleasure, and we really appreciate you calling in from New York City. Before we go, is there anything you would like to promote or tell our audience where they can find you? I have just recently, Gyldendal, uh, the publisher, has sent out USA's story, but that's in Danish. Uh, it was originally written by Erling Bjørn, who turned 100 this year. And it has been out for many years. It's a big volume. It's the best sort of one volume U.S. history in Danish. And now I have been privileged enough to write the uh, chapters on the Obama years and the Trump era. So that's an additional 130 pages. So now it's like an 800-page book where a very large proportion is devoted to the last 10 years. So that... USA's historian. USA's historian, yes. Okay. And uh, are you on social media? Is there anywhere where people can follow you? Or? Yeah, they can, yeah I'm, I'm, I'm on Facebook and I'm on Twitter, though. I've never, I've yet to publish anything originally. I'm just retweeting stuff that I find. So I'm, I'm not much of a contributor to Twitter, but on Facebook, I actually post a lot of stuff. Well, Niels, uh, again, on behalf of Ed and I, an absolute pleasure. Thanks for the opportunity to talk to you and about all sorts of big issues I haven't really thought about for a long time. So thanks for that. But a pleasure, Niels, and uh, take care over there, okay? Yes, you too. Bye. All right. And to our audience, don't forget to jump over to iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts and hit the subscribe button. And don't forget to leave a rating and review to help our podcast keep growing, where we are trying to drive conversations where we open up Denmark to the world and the world to Denmark. See you next time on the GDP. Are you getting the most out of your time in Denmark? Pick up your printed copy of the English language newspaper Copenhagen Post today to access relevant news and event information guaranteed to enhance your working and family life.